So I farm so hard, the employees wanna find me. And then wanna hire me. What's 100k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never wanna see another B unless I'm Jay Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Woo! Welcome to Farm So Hard. I am Dr. Oscar Santalo. I'm here with one of my super turns, one of my learners. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Joanna Longuera. I'm um, a fourth-year pharmacy student from U.S. Yeah. She's almost out, guys. She's almost out. And then I'm over <laughs> here picking on her to do episodes with me. All right, sweet. Today's episode is Formulary Management 2019. Times has changed. Formulate what it used to be. It ain't just non-form, regular form. It's non-form. Why are we using it? That kind of thing. So I'll kind of address those kind of questions today. What, like, what is a formulary medication? So we're just going to jump like right into the episode. So what is a formulary medication? It is the determination that the medication is appropriate for routine use. And that is a definition that is deemed by the 2008 ASHP guidelines. Joanna, can you give them the definition of what a pharmacy and therapeutics committee is? So a pharmacy and therapeutics committee is in charge of establishing policy development, communication, education, and formulary management. Well said. So you guys know like I like to practice with evidence-based admin. So like the backdrop for this article came out of AJHP 2018, uh, Contemporary Challenges and Novel Strategies for Health System Formulary Management. This is Hendel's article. Shout out to them. So I'll put this as a reference on the notes section on our website. So again, some more background information, like how most hospitals and health systems define formulary at this stage is product that's readily available or just whatever stocked in the pharmacy. The environment surrounding hospital pharmacies has changed dramatically. The cost of pharmaceuticals, the types of newly approved medications for specific disease states and stipulations related to the reimbursement or procurement of the medications have all been significantly altered. Like, Joanna, can you imagine like this drug goes through the entire formulary process and you guys can't even obtain it? How, how embarrassing <laughs> would that be on the pharmacy end? Uh, right. And present a growing number of reasons that the concept of a formulary medication should be uncoupled from that of a regularly stocked or routinely used product. And again, this is only because it's routinely available. It does not mean that it is appropriate to routinely use. And so, like patient populations. So like one of the bigger examples are like fluoroquinolones designed to mean that we just use them whenever we can. There has to be some kind of criteria for use to kind of present, so not present, to prevent antimicrobial resistance. Uh, Joanna, um, when we're talking about the process of adding things to formulary, like what factors are needed to be taken into account when evaluating a drug for a formulary addition? When evaluating a drug for formulary addition, I think the following factors really need to be taken into account. Procurement and regulatory restrictions, economic considerations, as well as safety and regulatory risks. So in order to provide effective patient care, we need to make sure that we have appropriate and necessary medications. However, we need to do is while also ensuring that we do not incur huge costs as a health system, right? Like the, the main role of pharmacy in the hospital, try to decrease costs, improving outcomes. Therefore, we need to consider costs, reimbursement, the, the availability of medications, and now the specialization of medications. And now something that was definitely highlighted in this article. Um, in terms of costs, 
Increasing cost of drugs do not allow hospital pharmacies to employ the traditional approach of routinely stocking all formerly medications within an institution. Typically, you guys would think, like, this is an expensive drugs. No, like, we're, the hospital is not going to carry, like, every ACE known to man and every ARB at the same time. But that's an ethical issue. That's a whole other topic for another day. But that's definitely a limitation for us. Joanna, what did the article say was the reason that hospital pharmacies are not able to employ the traditional approach of routinely stocking all formulae medications? So the main reason why hospital pharmacies aren't able to employ the traditional approach of routinely stocking all formulary medications within the institution is because of the increasing cost of drugs. So prescription drug expenditure is now responsible for as much as 20% of total healthcare spending in the U.S. Additionally, it's largely driven by specialty drugs, which account for 44% of the spending in 2017. And products that are not urgent or immediate use and are not needed during inpatient stays may not be needed to be regularly stocked and can be ordered individually for each scheduled patient or dose. Thus, advanced scheduling and restrictions on setting of care during use can be implemented. For emergent uses, such as antidotes and blood factor products, alternative stocking systems, including consignment contracts and regional sharing between institutions can be considered. Joanna, what does that, what does consignment actually mean? For higher price products that are needed for emergent uses, such as antidotes and blood blood factor products, alternative stocking systems, including consignment contracts and regional sharing between institutions can also be considered. In terms of formulary management functions, um, such as in you know guidelines, criteria for use, these provide vital to cost containment strategies. So in terms of budgeting, you'll notice that that's kind of like the push for clinical pharmacists. That's where they're heavily used in, in their expertise. They kind of like add restrictions, criteria for use, updating order sets, just to make sure that we're able to try to decrease utilization, therefore decreasing costs, but also you know, making sure all therapy is appropriate. So again, one of the things that Joanna was talking about earlier was reimbursement plays a role as a factor. Uh, What role does reimbursement play into formulary management? And formulary management functions, such as issuance of guidelines and criteria for use, may prove vital to cost containment for such products, particularly those that are not intended to be stocked consistently. So that's in referring that's in reference to the emergent products that are needed, so antidotes and blood factor products. Yeah, we're going to have a whole discussion on 340B, even though it's very hard to do that verbally because normally we just kind of draw it for our students and residents or we're teaching them about 340B. <laughs> um, <laughs> reimbursement. So on the admin side, reimbursement's a full-time job. Like it is legit. So it's if you don't have the dedicated resources – um, for people to process these kind of claims, like for examples, in some cases, reimbursement, it could be proactive or reactive. So in terms of it being reactive, like, oh, you have a patient that meets criteria, we can give them drug and then we can submit it to the manufacturer and the manufacturer can give us the drug back or reimburse us. So that process is very lengthy. It's very tough and kind of like what we said, it's a full-time job. So that's kind of like one of the biggest thing, biggest things that when you're considering high-cost medications for reimbursement, like can you actually dedicate your resources to this because the documentation has to be accurate and it's very specific to that patient. So you can't just say like, oh, I'm going to give it to this population. No, it's got to be given for this specific patient because they have to have their doctor's information and the patient's 
um, personal info. So moving on from reimbursement, uh, talking about availability, uh, some medications that can be routinely stocked, maybe on shortage or back order, or have restrictions in the way that they can be prescribed, ordered, and dispensed. Uh, an example article described was uh, drugs when you're trying to distribute through REMS programs. Uh, but this alone should not dictate whether medication should be on formulary or not. So like what I believe the authors were saying was that just because the drug isn't currently available doesn't mean we just kind of remove it from formulary. There are additional tasks that can be done. So tasks such as checking inventory and timely supply of products. It does become confusing and difficult and also time consuming. So it's like, do you have an automated process or some kind of inventory management software that can check it? But at the same time, there are limitations because that's assuming all the counts are accurate all the time. Or do you still have your buyers and your buyers actually go to shelf by shelf and just kind of see how How's it like? How's it looking? Are we looking low? Am I going to order more? Are like part levels set appropriately? And some hospitals and health systems are going to have more issues because a lot of times it's not just the buyer. The buyer can be a technician. Like they're just coming back from a route and then they're just going to check the bins and request the order. Yeah. So those are, those are yeah. definitely some of the barriers. Are there third party restrictions and requirements may not be readily be readily available for non-formulary items. So this happened to me recently because in the hospital, sometimes you can have outpatient areas, especially um, in surgical areas or procedure areas in general. And there's instances where we have, for example, Zarzio on formulary, but the patient can only get Nupigen. Like that's what's all, uh, that is actually what is going to be covered on the patient's insurance plan. So Nupigen for us is non-form. We stock it occasionally just because we know that this patient and it's going to be covered under their insurance. So that's kind of, of an example of like a third party restriction because same time we want to make sure patients get the drug. Uh, part of for the formula review should include ability to procure and stock a medication. So that's kind of like where I get picked on because we have a bunch of residents, a bunch of interns are all working on these fantastic MUEs and they ask me for cost data and it's not that simple just because we're also a 340B hospital. So if you're not a 340B hospital, Great. It should be a little simple to obtain. But when you're dealing with different processes, reimbursement, 340B accumulations, then becomes its own party, literally. So moving on to specialization, Joanna, um, what is specialization? Because that's good. That's actually very new and it's going to be a, a trend um, coming your way as you progress through your career. And how can it be managed? So specialization is important when considering this topic in relevance to pharmacy practice overall. So specialization is is when high cost and restricted drugs have a large amount of regulations and multiple safety concerns. So when it's used inconsistently, med errors are more likely to happen. And so the risks of these medications in terms of safety and regulations means that these are the medications that should be on the formulary and not excluded from the formulary. And so specialization can be managed through information, medication policies, therapeutic guidelines, as well as clinical decision support tools. Joanna, have you done podcasts before? Because you sound like a natural. No. I'm doing it a couple times. You sound way I better than not. I do. You're natural. I got a ringer. Super. <laughs> so how is this applicable at your, at your current institution? So in terms of formulary, and again, formulary is the, the determination that the medication is appropriate for routine use in selected patients. Formula can either be shared or independent. So if you're part of a health system, right, your formulary may be shared. That kind of means that every hospital abides to this formulary, like this one P&T 
committee. Some health systems or standalone institutions will have their each own independent formulary. So that's where things get interesting, especially in some academic health systems or just in general health systems. So obviously there's benefits to having a shared formulary, but there's a ton of work for that. So it's all dependent on the communication and whether or not PNT, like how involved uh, multidisciplinary that committee can be. Each hospital can serve diverse patient populations with many different disease states and comorbidities. So that's definitely a limitation to having a shared formulary. So patient population we serve in Orlando is not going to be the same patient population that we serve out in Kansas two different populations. Institutions can encompass not only the hospital, but also outpatient clinics, and therefore medication use needed may be different between settings. A hospital is transitioning away from just only formulary versus non-formulary to expanded definitions. So for my hospital is that we actually realize that we have stuff for non-formulary, but we still use it. So it's why do we call it non-formulary? And that's where all these discussions kind of came up. In order to adapt to the changing landscape of increasing drug costs and more complex reimbursement and regulatory issues, there are several management strategies we can employ. One of the recommendations was, you know, having different subcommittees that kind of roll up or feed up to your PNT committee. Uh, Joanna, can you tell us some examples of subcommittees of PNT? Yes. So as you just mentioned, there can be different subcommittees that roll into or feed up to the pharmacy and therapeutics committee. And so some examples of subcommittees include medication safety, quality committees, committees on antimicrobial stewardship, as well as adverse drug reaction committees and biotechnology subcommittees. Absolutely. For my health system specifically, we have med safety, we have formulary, and then we also have um, antimicrobial stewardship committees roll up into PNT and before we even get to a formulary committee, we actually have pharmacy expert panels. So yes, it may be a lengthy and long process, but I promise you by the time we get the PNT, smooth sailing. Like we it's been everything's been prepped and ready ready to go. So just making sure like pharmacies are able to divide up formulary in a way that ensures that pharmacists and providers have guidance on what is appropriate to use medications. And in this way, can cost contain when it is necessary to use certain medication because that's the whole goal of, of formulary. So you want to kind of make sure that whatever you're implementing actually takes place. And you also want to protect the staff. So you're also decreasing regulatory or organizational risk just to make sure that everything is done appropriately. So you're protecting the providers from themselves and you're also protecting the pharmacist from what they're actually verifying and dispensing. Ancillary formulary management is essential for drugs not stocked consistently. This entails issuing guidelines, criteria for use for certain drugs. Uh, the article was talking about, you know, you could have non-formulary drugs that are restricted. You could have non-formulary stocked. And we'll kind of go into more what the categories are that were recommended from this article. You can also have consignment contracts and regional sharing between institutions for high-cost products. So these could be, for example, like your factors. Again, in case uh, we forget, Joanna, can you tell them what, um, what consignment actually means? So a consignment contract is basically an agreement between two facilities. So this can be um, one pharmacy and a different pharmacy in, in a same health system or the pharmacy and the manufacturer. And it allows for the pharmacy to obtain the product, so the drug, for a reduced amount, and they will only have to pay the full price of the product once it's used. So that's an excellent way to have high-cost products come and be stocked at a lower price. And also, um, it's a great way to stay, um, help cost contain on the formulary. 
Absolutely. So like those are the two ways you can do it from manufacturer distributor, or you can do it just kind of like as a health system and have it just stored at one location. Uh, furthermore, appropriate formulary management helps prevent medication errors as the medication can still be put into the EMR and order sets can still be developed in this way versus historically when non-formulary medications were not included in the EMR and no guidance was available. I'm pretty sure pharmacists were like, how did this medication even get ordered? Like, how was it looked up? And you'd be surprised the workarounds that can kind of take place. So that's kind of where your med safety folks and your informatics folks kind of the role that they live in just to kind of prevent all these kind of things from happening. And that was kind of some of the examples that Joanna was talking about earlier. So Joanna, so down to what everyone has been waiting for. You guys are over here talking about, you know, all right, we can't do formulary non-form anymore. So pharmacy has got to be progressive. We have to move in a different direction. So what did this article, like what do they recommend as to how do we categorize our formulary process? Now, what should we expand it to? So instead of having just formulary and non-formulary designations, this article says that we can maybe expand it to include formulary stocked, formulary not stocked or not consistently stocked, formulary restricted, formulary requirement for confirmation of benefits of coverage prior to use, formulary outpatient or clinic use only, and then non-formulary stocked and non-formulary not stocked. No, it's good. Yeah, because like the stock did not stock. So I, I think some of the health systems did like non-formulary restricted. And the other one being non-formulary not stocked. In other words, like they're saying non-formulary, like non-use. Like we're not going to carry it, not going to buy it. A big nope. Right. And um, one other key point that I think that the article did a great job of mentioning, but I'm pretty sure people probably overlooked it. You got to monitor these P&T decisions for high budget, like cost items. I'm sure they're monitoring those, but just like simple things. Like I remember like one of the items we were looking at, it was actually, we deemed it non-formulary and it was actually used more. So Joanna, you've been doing a fantastic job, real natural podcaster here. So we're going to play a game. So based on those categories you just just described, I'm going to throw some drugs at you. And you're going to tell me where they should go. All right. You don't don't have to explain your rationale why, but if you want to, go for it. Okay. So (laughs) the first one, lisinopril, where should that go? So I think lisinopril is pretty straightforward. This should definitely be on the formulary. We have many patients that are on lisinopril, and it's pretty low cost. Um, There's no typically no issues in obtaining the drug. So lisinopril can be included on the formulary. I'm not going to argue with you there. What about a Pixaban? A Pixaban, I think, should be formulary restricted just to ensure that patients are candidates for a Pixaban and they can safely use it. Um, and and we can even put criteria out there that list what the criteria for a Pixaban are. No, I I can agree with that. It has to be some kind of formulary restricted, especially with the new ISMP. Um, medication errors for DOACs because providers or even pharmacists are mixing up brand and generic names and there have been like an increase in medication errors because of that. So I'm all for it. One of the things that you could do is that anything for DOACs related, you can just have order set. So it's something you can kind of track and make sure that appropriate labs are ordered, med histories are done, consults are given, etc. So I absolutely agree with you there. What about Vabomir? 
Vabomir, I also believe, should be formally restricted just to ensure that it's not used as a first line agent just because it is so broad spectrum um, and really to just make sure that it's being used safely and appropriately for the patients and for the appropriate um, indications and bugs. Yes. And there are other new antibiotics that are used for complicated UTIs. So this could be an example of do we carry all of them or do we just carry one of them, depending on the size of your hospital. So if you're a smaller hospital, this could be non-formulary but stocked. Being in a larger hospital, this could be formulary restricted. There's no right or wrong answer. So again, well said. Uh, Moving on. And I feel like I always mention this drug in every episode. And that's and the only reason why I'm better about this drug. It's a good drug, whatever. It's because I've done an MUE on this like every year of my life, ever since I've been born. IV acetaminophen. IV acetaminophen, I believe, should be non-formulary stocked just because it is very expensive and it's not used you know, consistently or for a long period of time or for a lot of different patients. It's really only used acutely for surgical patients or other patients while they're NPO. So we, I don't think it should be um, formulary. No, not the, all fair thoughts. Um, some of the other arguments for increased utilization of IV acetaminophen is because of the opioid epidemic. That's a fair argument. I'm not going to argue with a surgeon there. Some hospitals have deemed this non-formulary non-use. Um, some hospitals just have this formulary stocked. Some hospitals have this formulary restricted. Again, it's all dependent on, I think it's going to be really dependent on where you're at in your budget. In the drug trends episode, IV acetaminophen made the top 25 drug list. And as you guys remember, majority of the drugs there were oncology drugs. So it's like using all these expensive oncology drugs makes sense. And then it's IV acetaminophen. What? And then in my hospital, it's actually a top 10 drug either. So I'm assuming that if it's a top 10 or top 25 drug and there's opportunity there to make sure it's appropriate being used. And you're trying to decrease costs? Like kind of like what Jonah said, formally restricted, definitely a recommendation or non-formally restricted. That's absolutely fine. So there's no right or wrong answer there. Uh, Moving on to the next drug. Spinraza. And I recently added that drug in there because it happened to me the other day. I saw this drug and I had to dispense it. (laughs) (laughs) So Spinraza, what are your thoughts? Spinraza can be designated as formulary outpatient or clinic use only, especially if you know that that patient is coming in every once every four months. Yeah. So advanced scheduling is definitely an example. And that's kind of what we do. It's um, actually, we actually deem it non-formally. We just provide it for this patient. But if we know this patient's coming regularly, this is definitely an opportunity. It's just like, hey, let's just do it formulary and we'll just go ahead and just make sure we stock it. Advanced scheduling is the way to go. Hopefully departments communicate with each other because you don't want the patient to show up and it's not on the shelf. Um, pretty expensive drug. But again, like it's for a very specific patient population. And if you have that population, hospitals should be able to store or procure those medications. Moving on to the last drug, Jimmy will be so upset. He's not here to talk about this drug. He did two episodes <laughs> talking about uh, these kind of um, anti-coagulant reversals. So Indexa, where should Indexa go? Yeah. And then Indexa, I think, should be non-formulary stocked. And in this case, we can try to use some of those alternative stocking methods that we talked about earlier, such as consignment contracts and regional sharing between institutions just to help contain the cost of the medication, but also ensure that we have it in stock in the event of a life-threatening bleed in patients on rivaroxaban or apixaban. That's a good thought. No right or wrong. I'm pretty sure the Indexa guys would agree with you there. <laughs> Please stock it. But at the same time, we have to 
realize that there's specific patients that may need a specific drug, but at the same time, you're looking at costs. Like, is there alternative therapy? And for my health system, yeah, we did find alternative therapy that it's not only as effective, but equally safe. So depending on what everyone everyone else's analysis is. So Indexa, definitely one of those trickier questions. That PNT was pretty interesting. <laughs> Sat in that one. That was a lot of fun. But yeah. So Joanna, you played a great game. Really appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No right or wrong there. For yeah. the audience, um, we talked a lot about today about formulary management. But before I, I get you to do the summary, a lot of people, a lot of clinical pharmacists just see the MUE or drug, MUE is a medication use evaluation or DUR, which is a drug utilization review, right? Those are some kind of things that you do to kind of build into a formulary review. Once you get through the formulary process and approved, not approved, a lot of that, that's where the clinical pharmacist or whoever agreed in PNC, that's where it kind of just leaves off. No one ever sees the other part where it's how it's operationalized. And that's the part where, or how they're even tracked. So that's probably the most important part. It's how is it going to be built in your EHR? How are we going to procure the drug? How's the education for the drug? Who's going to do the order set? There's a whole, there's a whole bunch of steps in order to operationalizing. Don't know if that's a word, but it sounds good. <laughs> how are we actually going to get this drug to the patient? And there's that whole piece. And then again, just making sure you're monitoring. Like, all right, cool, we approved it. And in a year from now or six months from now, we're going to run a report or just kind of check on the utilization of our formulary decision. There's my soapbox about um, post PNT things. That's definitely an area where pharmacy can actually step in and to make sure the drug gets to the patient or drug doesn't get to the patient, depending on your decision. Joanna, can you please summarize this episode for everyone? So in summary, it's pretty clear that the traditional notion of a formulary medication as one that is regularly used and stocked has become antiquated. Infrequent use of a medication for a niche population should no longer be the sole grounds for designation of the drug as a non-formulary product. In fact, these medications are often high cost, restricted in availability, or intended for highly specialized use in patient care. And ancillary drug information, medication policies, therapeutic guidelines, and clinical decision support tools tied to formulary medications are essential to managing the appropriate, cost-effective, and safe use of these medications. Beautiful. Um, thank you for the recap. And my takeaway was that, oh, this drug's not formulary, but we're still using it. Like, where does that? So it kind of just uh, gave us a little more insight and answered a lot of our questions as to how are we going to manage formulary and from a pharmacy perspective from here on out. So again, like this article was referenced or the article that we were using, uh, contemporary challenges and novel strategies for health system formulary management at the same time. I didn't see any limitations to this article. I thought his article was well-written, fairly recent. Doesn't recommend or doesn't really go into the formulary MUE process in terms of pharmacy specifically. And doesn't really describe the operational process as I previously discussed, the implementation and monitoring part. But I'm just very happy that they actually went through the P&T process, which I'm pretty sure was the main focus of the article. These destinations can be restrictive, and it is important to ensure that there's a balance between cost containment and appropriate patient care. Again, guys, like P&T will remain a key in implementing and monitoring any of these changes, so cooperation with any members in P&T is absolutely key. So, again, I want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. Uh, my name is Dr. Oscar Santalo, and I'm here with one of my super turns. Joy.
Yeah, there you go. Again, if you guys you guys can follow me on like LinkedIn or you can follow me on, on Twitter at farmsoulheart underscore OS. And again, thank you guys for listening to this episode. Have a great day. Yeah.